Let's jump in. Comparison of counseling philosophies. Again, what we're trying to do in this weekend, right, is just lay the groundwork. Just lay the groundwork and we're going to build. So as you move forward, next weekend there's going to be particulars on parenting and marriage. And then in that last weekend there's going to be more things on depression and postpartum and medical issues. And we bring a Christian uh, counseling physician in to teach some of those sessions. So we're still just laying the foundation. So I just want to give a caveat. Some of, for some of you, you just may say, ah, oh, this is so basic, this. But I think we need to, it's helpful to understand. Remember where we started? What makes biblical counseling biblical? It can be helpful to understand what has been done and put in place largely in our world today regarding counseling. Because you'll see things and hear things and bump up against things that maybe you don't fully as well as you should understand. Where did that come from? When did that start? And so my desire in this hour is to simply do a big overview and I know I'm not going to touch on everything, and, and there'll be latest, greatest things that are going on today that you'd say, you didn't even mention that. I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. It's one hour. This is the big overview, because there are over 250 psychotherapies currently in use today. There's no way I can go into the details of all of them, but what I want to do is show you what I think are four main categories or roots, the roots from which so many of the counseling models come today. Now, you think about Ecclesiastes where it says nothing new under the sun. Very often, things just get recycled, folks, and it's a new name, it's a new label, and there's a buzz, and talk shows are talking about it, and books are being waved around. But if you scratch below the surface, it's like, that's really still this, and it's been repackaged and presented. So let me give you some guidelines about how I want to look at these four main roots. There's certain things we'll look at with each one. Here's how I want to go about it. Guidelines for various, for evaluating various theories. So you need to think as a Christian, all right, what should I be looking at with anybody's model to determine whether I should grab hold of it and use any of it? Here's the areas that I think it would be helpful for you to think about. What is their epistemology? What is their, just a big word for theory of knowledge. So everybody that has a model of counseling has a body of information and they say this is most important. Where'd they get that? What is their theory of knowledge. How do, in other words, how do they propose to know what they know? Right? How do they propose to know what they know? And in the world of information and knowledge and thinking, there are four possible sources for truth for this epistemology. Intuition. And the one way to decide you know what you know is just, it just feels right. I kind of already touched on that in the last hour, right? But we're so prone to that, right? I choose what I choose and align myself with what I do because that feels right to me. That just feels right. But because of sin and our sin nature, what you think feels right just might be wrong. Reason. What do I think? That's fair enough. And again, I I wanted you to hear we are not non-thinking people. As soon as you come to faith in Christ, turn off your brain. Not true at all. But folks, we do not, we're not in allegiance to everything I think. If I think it, and I think it strongly, and it's crystal clear to me, it must be right. No, not necessarily. Empiricism. What do tests show? And again, we can learn a lot. Often we can learn. But here again, because we live in a fallen, broken world, I hope you know this and have learned this. Tests can show all kinds of things, right? 
And people bring a bias with them even as they choose what pools to dip into to do this test. And so often something that was presented as these are the facts, later it all comes out. This person already had an agenda and so you got to be careful what do tests show. And yet there's some value in, you know, there's some value in that. But I don't think that, I don't think you want that to be the ruling factor. Revelation. What does God say or reveal to us. And we saw the need in the last hour. We need his counsel. And as I, as I know what he says and hear what he says, then I am going to think and I am going to feel some things and I may test some of these things out, but I don't want to discount what God's word says based on feelings or my thinking or what tests show. What does God's word say? And here's where we step, a big step away from other models and the world. John 17, 17 says, sanctify them through your truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify just means the changing and growing process of being healthy, being effective in life, having joy, peace, purpose, and relationship to God. How's that going to happen? By your truth. Your word is truth. The psalmist said in Psalm 19, 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. Psalm 138, the psalmist said, I, no, I'm sorry, you have magnified your word above all your name. We need his word. So the the first question you need to ask is, what's their epistemology? How do they claim to have this body of knowledge based on what? How'd you come up with this? A second great question that we need to scratch below the surface on any model of counseling is, what is their anthropology? Which simply means, what is your view of human beings? Who do you think human beings are, men and women? Are we just animals? Are we created in the image of God? Are we just like the plant and animal kingdom? But what do you, where's your starting point for human beings? Because here's what you'll often see. Behind every psychology is almost always an unbiblical anthropology. And if you start wrong on who people truly are, it's not likely you'll come to accurate conclusions. How's the problem defined? How is the problem defined? In other words, is it generally blamed on the counselee or some outside force? How seriously is the problem taken? And when the counseling is over, does the counselee consider the problem to be more or less severe than when they came in? How do you define the problem? What are we talking about? Then you've got to ask, how's the problem solved? So how do you define it and set it up? Then, okay, counseling should be about change, not just endless sessions for no reason then how is the problem solved? Is the counselee told to take responsibility? How do you determine what people should be like? If, we're gonna, if counseling is about change, this is fair, changed into what? Where are we headed? What, what would the goal be? And see, this is not just secular models that, that get it wrong here. There are Christian models that get it wrong here. I'll give you an example. Like, you know, how's the problem solved? I was trying to help some of the... And this was a long time ago, so don't try to guess who this is. Trying to help somebody who committed adultery, so there's sexual sin. It's a mess. I'm meeting with this person, bringing it, I hope graciously and lovingly, that you need to repent. we got to figure this out. How would you get to this place? What have you been wanting? What have you been thinking? I need you to call her. We're cutting it off. It, you know, it was someone in another state. Da, 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 da. At the same time, two sweet little Christian older ladies. I don't know how he found them. He's meeting with them also. 
And their Christian counseling is you sit in a chair and they pray special prayers over you because there's a demon of lust that needs to be cast out. Now, do you see how different that is? He's coming in. Every time he meets with them, he's given a a large sense of there's nothing for you to do. It's not your fault. There's this demon of lust. This is how this happened. And these sweet little Christian ladies have special prayers. They pray over you. That's very different. He's not responsible. It's an outside force. It matters. How's the problem solved? How do we think we're going to go about solving this? What is the goal of counseling? What product or end result is the counseling intended to produce? In other words, how do we know when we're done? (laughs) And that's very different. You think about it with some models, in a sense, I don't mean to be ugly, is the goal to ever be done? Not really. It's just, it, there's almost a sense sometimes from our culture that the most healthy person is a person just in counseling forever. That's how I'll sustain and be healthy. And don't hear me saying there's not, as a believer, there ought to be multiple times that we enter into counseling. It doesn't even have to be official counseling, but we're just one anothering, one anothering conversations, or you reach out to another woman or a man and you meet together a few times, or you read a book, or then you do really say, hey, counselors, it ought, don't hear me saying, there's not a lifetime of a need. But this, I meet with this person at Thursday on Thursday at 3. From now till Jesus comes, we don't really have a sense that this will ever be done. That's very different. What is the goal of counseling? Try to answer. So I want to try to answer these questions. There may be other questions we could ask, like how much does it cost? Or, but these are the questions I'm going to try, try to ask about these four roots. What is the role of the counselor? So if someone's coming in with a problem, what's my role? And you'll see that this can be very different, right? We're going to see her here in a minute. Many times I'm just a sounding board. I don't tell them anything. That is not not my role. I'm just here. Again, I hope you heard me saying, don't hear what I'm not saying. There is an appropriate place to sit and suffer with them and groan And be slow to speak and show that you care. But that's not the same as saying we never speak. It's not your place to ever tell them anything. They have all the answers within them. They just need a good sounding board and they can figure this out. What's the role of the counselor? So we want to know enough about other theorists to make informed decisions. So we want to know enough about these other models to make some informed decisions again... Because we can learn from other models, we can benefit from other models, but we want discernment as we reach out and grab anything in their camp so that I can know, is my counseling different from so-and-so down the street? And if so, how? You know, what makes my counseling, I hope, biblical? Can I refer to other counselors? And if so, whom? The other reason I want to ask these questions is I don't want to be so arrogant as to assume, I don't want to be that church That's like, nobody else has got it right. Nobody else can be. We can't tap into anybody else. It's all right here. That's not healthy either. But as I think, who else could I partner with? I need to ask some questions before I just say, okay, sure. I think I have at the end of your notes, these were questions that I finally came up with after, you know, calling through the phone book and meeting with different Christian counselors or psychologists, and I started to learn, ooh, if I don't ask this, 
We could both walk away. Now, don't hear me. I hope this, don't take this wrong. It's the same thing with people at your front door, right? If you don't know what to ask a Jehovah's Witness on Saturday at your front door, will they not be trying to help you know we both think the same thing? Now, maybe you don't know what I'm talking about because you've never talked to one. That's what I experience every time. Oh, yeah, Jesus. No, I have to be the one to say, I don't think we're the same, my friend. You say Jesus is a created being. I say he's equal to God. Unless you bring it up and know what to ask. Who is Jesus Christ? They'll just talk real friendly like we're the same. The same is true with this counseling world. You're going to need to know what to ask. What is your view on people? You know, basically, starting point. What about this? What about that? So I'm not saying this is inspired, but there's my list of questions that I finally came up with to kind of get my arms around. Is this someone I can partner with? And how careful should I be when I'm cutting and pasting, reading and thinking and hearing stuff that I might use or not use? So here we go. Route number one. And I'm just going to call this depth psychology. First category or model. Leader, Sigmund Freud. Probably the biggest name in counseling. Mid-1800s into the early 1900s. He was born in a Viennese family. Three boys, five girls. His father was very authoritarian. And later he says he realized his intense hatred of his father. Along with his childhood sexual desires and fantasies and feelings for his mother. He earned a medical degree at the University of Vienna at the age of 26. Became a lecturer there at 30 years old. Prolific writer. 24 volumes of his complete writings. And Freud said, Freud said, uh, I used to have a slide that said it. Well, hello. Okay. Freud Freud said, I am a God-hating Jew. Quote. Don't hear me saying we can't learn anything, but I want to use caution when someone... Proclaims that. I'm a God-hating Jew. Okay, well, that's very different than where I'm coming from. So I don't know that I just want to say whatever he says. Oh, yeah, he's super smart. Many other prominent theories, theorists fit into this group, including Jung and Adler. So let's march through some of this. What's he say about man? What, what's his starting point with man? Instinctual animal. Freud said we're instinctual Animal, very deterministic. Man's behavior is determined by irrational forces, unconscious motivations. He was very big on dreams, lots of unconscious. What is going on in your unconscious? Certain psychosexual events during the first six years, early years of your life. And the goal of life for Freud, if you read his stuff, get close to him, is gaining pleasure and avoiding pain. Gaining pleasure and and avoiding pain. And he's the one that came up with this id, ego, super ego model. You've got these three things going on that in a sense are in conflict with each other. That your id is, is that original personality at birth. And your super ego is the judicial branch of who you are internally. That moral code. Uh, and then your ego is the executive uh, that governs and controls and tries to regulate between these two back and forth. And so often in this model, the blame is put on the church or your parents or someone who taught you these right and wrong things. Now, I've already touched on, no one had to teach you that. Romans 2 says, God's law is written on your heart. But he blames it on outside forces. Problem is a conflict between the id and the superego. You've got this conflict between, id is just raw what I want. 
You can see that in little children. They're just all id. Or you may say, I live with id. He's, he's still that way. It's just what I want. But typically, as we get older, it's toned down, at least to just fit in with society. We recognize this is not going to go well. But just, there's this conflict between id and superego. Responsibility? Not man's. It's not, it's not man's. Freud wrote this. The religions of mankind must be classed among the mass delusions. And in a letter to his pastor friend, Oscar Pfister, he referred to the teachings of Jesus as psychologically impossible and useless for our lives. What about guilt? Every human being has, has experienced guilt. And it's one of the most troubling things that people bump up against. What's his answer? It's false. It's just false. It's false. It shouldn't be there because whatever it is you want, it's not wrong that you want that. The fact that you feel guilty is just because someone outside of you has laid on you their deal, and that's why you feel guilty. It's false. False. So what's the treatment? Free the id. Side with the id. Weaken the superego. Free the id. Side with the id. Weaken the the superego. And there's several ways you can do that. Either just ignore your conscience. And see, here's what's scary about this, folks. Could you ignore, he's calling it whatever he wants to call it, ego, superego. What we know is that you are in the image of God and you have a conscience that's got God's law written on it. What's the Bible say? Could you ignore that enough that you stop feeling it anymore? Is that a good place to get? Now, but see, that's where he's pushing. Just ignore it. Just, the Bible talks about grieving. You don't want to go there. You ignore it. Or you follow, you follow the desires of the, of the id until guilt is not felt anymore. In, in other words, I know this is going to sound base, but just keep on committing adultery. This was your first time. I know it can be a little unsettling. Just keep on until you don't feel bad about it anymore. Can you do that? You might could. But even often people have to drink or abuse prescription drugs. Even, even then there's just these, these tiny little gateways where in a quiet moment they're gripped with it again. The wrongness of this. And they've got to turn to something else just to numb this of I do feel bad about this. So with this guilt, he says find the source Shift blame and label as false. Find the He's going to ask you a lot of questions about, so what did your parents teach you? So did you go to church? So who do you respect? Like, how did this get on you? Because here's what you want, and I want to help you get what you want, and I want to help you not feel bad about it as you do. So we've got to figure out who's at fault for you feeling guilty about this. And the counselor, here's where, where this hugely comes the, this, this man or woman is an expert. These are really tricky, complex, difficult things. The average person cannot do that. You need someone else that knows how to shift blame and deal with false guilt and side with the id. And so what are some of the implications of this philosophy of counseling? I'm sorry, I didn't want to go there yet. What are some of the implications? Well, the counselee is not responsible. They sit, they talk. You must have an expert to work you through this. 
And Freud believed that Freud believed that education and establishing, he called it, quote, a dictatorship of reason. Education and a dictatorship of reason would be the only solution to the cruel behavior in our world, immoral behavior that characterizes human history. He and Albert Einstein were contemporaries, lived at the same time. Two brilliant people are likely to be talking to each other. And in a letter to Albert Einstein, who had written to Freud, asking what... Einstein asked Freud, what can be done to protect mankind from war? And Freud's response was this. The ideal condition of things would, of course, be a community of men who had subordinated their instinctual life to the dictatorship of reason. Again, he's trusting in, if we just think this through, we can make good decisions. Folks, I hope this doesn't offend you, whatever your origins are. We're all sinners, the German population that came up with the atrocity of wiping out the Jews were very intellectual people. These were not ignorant, uneducated people. That argument does not fly. Just enough education and reason, we would not do cruel things. No, that was at the hands of very educated people. We're no better than them, whatever your origin is. That's the human heart. That's how sinful we are. When you read history and you just think, how could people do this to someone else, women and children? That's how sinful we are, folks. Our intellect and our reason, they reasoned their way into, right? Did they have reasons for doing that that they thought made perfect sense? Because they wanted this elite society. We're going to eliminate gypsies. We're going to eliminate Jews. We're going to eliminate, any, we're going to have this elite race, Aryan race, right? If you've done any reading, That's what reason will lead you to. Reason will not lead you to compassion for other people. But here's what he admitted towards the end of his life. And I do appreciate this. So once someone has a model and has been proposing it and actually training people to do it, you'd like to think that the people that are actually most involved in it, that this model would have helped them, right? If they understand it better than anybody else and they're experts, that they would just have these amazing lives. He said this, That psychoanalysis has not made the analysts themselves better, nobler, or of stronger character remains a disappointment for me. Perhaps I was wrong to expect it. So, you could picture this model, I know this is simplistic, but with a shovel. Because it's very much about digging into your past. What, who over-socialized you? Who got a hold of your superego? What has happened? Who's at fault? Let's dig into the past. Second root, behaviorism. Behaviorism, B.F. Skinner. So if you've gone to college and you had Psych 101, these are all names that you would know. You don't even have to have gone to college. That These are names that have been around long enough that you probably recognize each one of these. B.F. Skinner, 1904 to 1990, born in Pennsylvania to hardworking parents, a mother that tried to teach right and wrong, encouraging him to consider what others think if he strayed off the path, and a grandmother that taught him about the hell, uh, the fires of hell as punishment. Then a father who was a lawyer They thought it was a good idea to walk his young son through jails and constantly told him, this is the punishment for breaking laws. What's he say about man? Conditioned animal. Do you see, I think, a theme already? For Freud, instinctual animal. For Skinner, we've still got the word animal, but he's been conditioned. He's been conditioned because he's a blank tablet, neutral. So here's where... 
I find it very unfortunate that so many Christian counselors have still grabbed onto this, this concept that people are neutral. They have to become bad. They have to be conditioned to be bad. The Bible teaches, I hope this doesn't shock you if you have precious little children or grandchildren, they're born bad. All right? I, one of my favorite things that, that I'm sure women don't like, vipers and diapers. That's what you got right there. That's right. And I love them. But that heart is already, they don't have to play with someone else's bad kids to like, you know, if you've raised kids, I raised five. I mean, I never had to teach them. It wasn't like, you guys, you're being too nice. There's a plate of cookies. Take one. They're just like, whoa, for the biggest cookie. I never taught them. This is exhausting, you guys. Everyone's being so truthful. Here's how you lie. And it's to your advantage sometimes to lie. Lying can, they lied. They did it well. They did it often. Where'd that come from? I didn't teach them to lie. I didn't teach them any of that. Right here. Right here. Right here. Even that whole thing, you know. So this is a model that's very much, you've been conditioned. It's the environment that has affected you. And you can see how this plays out in our culture. Just think if we educate people better, give them a good environment, put them in a place where then they wouldn't be bad. It's not true because your heart goes with you. Even like uh, what I've sensed and, and forever I was saying, like everything isn't just wonderful in the country. You know, there's just, just thought, let's get out of the city and let's get in the country. Oh, I say to Vicky now, like meth is in the country. That's what's out there. There's meth. And lots of times people in the country are in the country because they want to be in the country and they're mean and they're burning tires next to your property and just country's not all nice either because people live there. It's like the answer isn't concrete versus country. It's the heart. It's the heart. And you take your heart with you. He wrote the book Walden, which made a huge splash. Walden, actually, in Walden too, in the 50s and, and 1960s. This is what put him on the map. And this book was a fictional outline of a modern utopia set in the United States. And the book pictures a society in which human problems are solved by scientific technology of human conduct. And the book has been a center of controversy since 1948. But Skinner wanted to demythologize psychology and get rid of concepts like mind and attitudes and freedom. He wanted this to be very scientific, very laboratory. And uh, everything has to be based on observations, measurements, namely behavior. And so man is an animal whose behavior isn't determined by his environment. For example, in, in an interview with People magazine, shortly before his death, he was, he was, I think he was in his 80s, think about one of the things that people struggle with the most. It's human nature, and the Bible says they will. There is a fear of death. And the gospel and the resurrection of Christianity solves that beautifully. Our greatest fear is addressed by the gospel. Our world still has little or no answers for that. And here's this guy with a model who's written books, who's taught, da 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 And in an interview with People Magazine, he's asked, what advice do you have for those who are afraid of dying? He says, what arouses fear is not death itself, but the act of talking and thinking about it. And that can be stopped. We brood about death most when we have nothing else to do. That's all you got? I mean, that's not much, that's not much better than just simply Bob Newhart saying, stop it. He's just saying, stop it and get busy. Do Scrabble. 
do a board game, start a garden, stay busy. Folks, death is so real and so terrifying, you cannot stay busy enough to never think about it. And it has this bad habit of just falling in your lap again as a friend gets cancer or someone you know dies in a car. We live in a world where regularly we're jarred by the reality we are finite. We are finite. We're a vapor. We're dust. And yet, so, so here's what I think is interesting about the Christian model and the gospel and the Bible. It gives you some of the worst news that you are finite, you are dust, you are a vapor, you're not self-sufficient. So it, it kind of, in some sense, pushes you down and this same gospel and this same book and message lifts you up as never before and says, and yet, the God of the universe sent his son to die for you, took on flesh, and solves your greatest problem for you that you can never, it puts you in your place and it exalts more than anything else. And says, no, you're, you're created in the image of God. Christ died for you, rose from the dead for you, can be coming back for you. No other model addresses things this way. So what's the problem? It's environmental. It's an environmental failure. Man's environment has produced behavior that is unacceptable. So figure out what in the environment needs to be changed to get better behavior. Because people are basically good if they're encouraged and their environment is pushing them in the right direction, they're good. Responsibility, again, it's not man's responsibility. It's the fault of the environment. Like the Freudian theory, Skinner's, for Skinner, man can't be held responsible. Guilt, Freud said guilt is false. It's been laid on you. Skinner simply said guilt is not important. It's just not important. Because there's nothing scientific about that, right? That's just a feeling that you have. We're not going to go there. It's not important. And yet, once again, I would say, death is one of those things that people struggle with more than anything else. And guilt, and he's saying, death, just don't think about it. And guilt, it's not important. Treatment, restructure the environment. And that's why I wrote the book Walden and Walden Two of a utopia you know, if we could spend enough money and, and build enough of the right stuff in the right place in the right ways, we'll just have this great society of good people. In addressing guilt, then he just says, change the standard. Change the standard. And so who is this counselor? What's the counselor's role? So with Freud, it's a lot of digging into the past, trying to figure out... What your childhood and your feelings towards your mother and, and you know who did this to you? Da, 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 da. With Skinner, you're a technician because it's very scientific. So you could, in simplicity, draw a lab coat to represent this camp. And therefore, once again, just like with Freud, this takes an expert to dig into your past. This takes an expert to do this kind of stuff. Not just anybody can do this. Third wave. Carl Rogers, 1902 to 1987. His home growing up was characterized by warm relationships but strict religious standards. He actually began studying for the ministry to be a pastor at Union Theological Seminary but left to pursue a degree in psychology when he says he realized he could not work in a field that required belief in specific religious doctrines. He didn't want that. Once again, man, basically good. Potential within. A mature, he'll mature like a flower. 
He said, children, if left alone, would just blossom. I'm just like, have you ever been around children? Did you have any kids? What are you talking about? Usually what I found has blossomed while we were gone is not good. It requires cleanup. It's like, oh, my goodness. But you still see this today, folks. We, we laugh, and I understand. But these things are still being repackaged and recycled. I still read stuff like this that we don't want to in, instruct and intentionally move children in certain directions. That children are so innocent and just so pure. If you just let them just kind of play by a creek and discover life. And if they want to do math, okay. If they don't, okay. Yeah, they'll be selfish and ignorant. My sons would never have thought of working on math, ever. That would never have dawned on them. They would still be climbing trees. We had to just keep saying, you've got to do this. You've got to do this. You've got to do this. But there's this whole concept. They're so pure, so innocent. Just let them discover life and blossom. He said one of the most rabid. Here's where he's coming from. One of the most revolutionary concepts to grow out of our clinical experience is the growing recognition that the innermost core of man's nature, the deepest levels of his personality, the base of his, what word do we have again? Animal nature is positive in character, is basically socialized, forward-moving, rational, realistic. I don't know who he's hanging out with. So the problem is the environment. The environment hinders. So in other words, someone squelched their flower. If they're all twisted and torqued. But think about this, folks. Is it not what you see today? And I understand it's shocking. But, but when you have the Bible in your hand, don't hear me say that I'm not shocked. It's still upsetting when someone kicks open the side door of a theater with an automatic weapon and just randomly murders people. But every time it happens, if you pay attention and you read any of, of the chatter of what's going on, our world experts rush in and say, how in the world could someone do something like this? What happened to them? And everyone expects to find out, oh, they were tied in a closet since two years old and beaten with a belt and left with spiders. And lo and behold, you find out they lived in a marvelous home. Their family had lots of money. They had no reason to, right? Now, occasionally do you find someone who's really been abused. But normal people, the environment did not torque this person. This person has that kind of wicked heart and it is shocking but we have answers that the world sometimes doesn't they're they're the ones that are just saying what 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 and then i don't know about you but this chafes me almost always then they are labeled and declared mentally insane which then removes them from the risk because because the world's thinking is no sane person could do this therefore they can't be responsible we give them a label and God's word has better answers. So the responsibility in this model is not man's. Not responsible. Guilt, again, not important. And the treatment, here's his treatment. You want to help them realize the potential within. Help them realize the potential within. And you have the solution. So this model is really big on I don't want to tell you what to do. You've got the solution within you. I want to listen well. If we spend enough time, you can decide. And it's very feeling-oriented. Focus on feelings, 
not facts. Rogers outlines four main differences of his system and classical counseling that would be more directive, like like telling people some things. The directive counselor asks highly specific questions. Non-directive counselor recognizes feelings or attitudes. Listen, I hope you understand, just because we have God's word and we want to bring truth, you should ask questions. Ask questions. Jesus asked questions. So it's not that we don't ask questions. If you don't ask enough good questions, you probably won't be saying the right thing that will help the most. And it's not that I don't recognize feelings, but I'm not going to just park it there. And we're not going to dig down into overtly your feelings. I want to know, as I said earlier, what's behind those feelings or what you've been thinking. How did you begin to feel this way so strongly? What have you been thinking? How have you been processing life? How have you been connecting the dots? What have you been believing? Whereas he says, no. Directive counselor explains, discusses, and gives information. Non-directive counselor just interprets feelings or attitudes. The directive one gathers evidence and persuades clients to undertake proposed action. There are things that I'm going to have to ask them now to do or not do. That's different than what they've been doing. Whereas the non-directive rarely explains, discusses, or gives information. The directive points out a problem or condition needing correction. Non-directive defines the interview situation in terms of, of the client's responsibility for using it. Take time to find answer in herself or himself. Here's an example right out of a Christian counseling book. I mean, you could just multiply this by thousands. But listen to how this man, James, has been more shaped by psychology than theology. He gives this example in his book of meeting with a man. He says... If I thought I could answer the question helpfully, Fred, I would. But I know from my experience that I can be of more help to you another way. I'm convinced that you have everything in you, good judgment, good sense of what all the implications are and what the situation is really like to make a good decision really better than I can. Hit pause. No, he can't. Or he wouldn't be sitting there, right? So don't hear me saying, I just come barreling in and I just tell him exactly what to do. I I ask questions and... And I want to lead them to... But very often the reason they're there is they are stuck. They are stuck. Or their life's upside down. Or there's already been some horrible, toxic implications of what they chose that they thought was right. You're going to have to help them. You're going to have... No, I don't think you have everything you need. But what I can do is provide some guidelines in thinking through these complicated questions and be a kind of a sounding board. So you don't tell them. You just let them bounce things off you. I think it's interesting. You'll see this. This is dated now, and I haven't taken the time to try to figure out what's something else like this more modern. But it proves my point, because you still see it. Something I do love about our culture, it's just the grace of God, is biblical truth will still sometimes show up right in a TV show or a movie. I don't know how, but I always love it when it happens. And this was an... Oops, I didn't mean to move there yet. This was an episode with ER when that was big. And uh, this guy is dying. He knows he's just got a little bit of time left. He's dying. He is guilt-stricken. Isn't it interesting? The world tees it up and, and puts together a scenario that's so common. He's scared of dying, and he's filled with guilt over some horrible things that he's done. And a hospital chaplain is in the room with him. That's, that's the back of her head. And he is crying out for help. He's in anguish. 
And all she'll keep doing is saying, I hear you say, because you're taught to just repeat back to them. I hear you saying you're really, it's like, I said that already. And finally, in frustration, he says, I want you to, I want to talk to a real chaplain who believes in a real hell and who believes in a real heaven. And is there atonement for what I've done? I don't know who wrote that, but thank you. The answer is yes, there is atonement, there is hope, the gospel, and Jesus Christ. And so, yes, people fear death, yes, people are, are, are filled with guilt many times, and they want to know, can I be forgiven? Is there hope for me? But if you've got a counselor who's been taught, just parrot back to you what you're saying, I'm not supposed to direct you at all, this came from somewhere. So here we got modern day hospital chaplains that are supposed to be helping people at their worst times. But if the model is traced back to Skinner or somebody like that, not very helpful. Monk, one of my favorite. I have all seasons of Monk to the glory of God. And same way. So he's this detective that has obsessive, you know, he's always washing his hands, can't touch stuff. And so if you watch any of it, it's like he's in therapy with Dr. Coger. How long? Forever. It never ends. And interestingly enough, the, the, the actor that played his counselor actually died. And so then halfway through with this whole thing, it's a different person. But it's the same way. If you see it, Monk will meet with him, and the guy doesn't tell him anything. It's just this time together, spending this kind of time together. This, this is reflected. This is a model that can be traced back. There's Dr. Coger, the one that died. So guilt, what's the, what's the deal? Just get comfortable with yourself. Just get comfortable with yourself. So what's the role of the counselor? So we've got shovel with the Freud model. Dig into the past. How did you start to think this way? Who did this to you? Whose fault is this? With Skinner, we've got a lab coat. It's very scientific, environmental. Let's get the right environment. Let's test. Let's figure out. People are good. And if we got them in the right circumstances, they'll be good. With this, you could just picture, uh, in, in all simplicity, a mirror. You don't tell them anything. But if you'll just be there for them and just reflect back to them what they're saying. Just reflect back to Clarify what they're saying. They have within them everything they need to solve this and make a good decision. And so you don't need to directly tell them anything. So what are some of the implications? Implications of this philosophy of counseling. Well, sadly, the church has turned to therapy more than the life-changing doctrine of God's word many times. Donald McCullough writes, The church, more often influenced by cultural trends than theological commitments, has eagerly reclined on the psychotherapist's couch. At first, liberals fell under the spell of the pastoral counseling movement. Carl Rogers became far more important than Carl Barth. But in recent years, evangelicals have outdistanced liberals, exchanging the language of Scripture for the language of psychology today. Now sin, and see here, this is how you'll hear this. And again, there are people that do this. I could name names. Sin is not sin anymore. It's low self-esteem. You don't want to tell people they're sinners. They already feel bad about themselves. And you, again, you just see this repackaged. You know, we go back to Robert Schuller with the Crystal Cathedral. 
And now today we've got Joel Osteen when he's interviewed by Larry King and says, why don't you ever mention sin? He says, I just feel like people already feel bad about, enough about themselves. I'm here to encourage people. Okay, I understand. I want to be encouraging too. But we can't stop talking about sin. Sin is our biggest problem. But you can see many times these people, and I hope you also see, if you would... If you would acclimate yourself and tone down some of what the Bible says and align yourself more with how the culture talks, you can be very popular. You can take a former basketball arena and turn it into your church that seats 40,000 people because people will come to hear this. They like it. The church is working with people who in many ways have bought into their own personal feelings as the highest authority in their lives. That's what you'll see. And they're taught to think it's right. My feelings are the highest authority in my life. Roger said this, experience is for me the highest authority. Now, hit pause. Can you see the train wreck that lies ahead if for every individual your own experience is your highest authority? What are the chances for peace? And also, Someone's going to have to set aside what they think, want, and have felt and experienced. This is not going to work. But they act like it will. It will not. The touchstone of validity is my own experience. So what is most true for me is my own experience. No other person's ideas and none of my own ideas are as authoritative as my experience. It is to experience that I must return again and again to discover a closer approximation to truth. Folks, you do not want to base truth on your experience. I need truth from an outside source to inform my experience. I'm going to interpret my experience very differently based on truth from outside. If I'm left with nothing more than my experience and my jaded thinking process as a sinner, I'm not going to come to good conclusions. Approximation to truth as it is in the process of becoming in me. Neither the Bible nor the prophets, neither Freud, you slamming Freud, neither Freud nor research, neither the revelations of God or man can take precedence over my direct experience there you go so as they're counseling your experience is what matters most i just want to listen to you draw this out of you he said i find i'm at my best when i can let the flow of my experience carry me in a direction which appears to be forward toward goals of which i am but dimly aware oh that's deep a river runs through it Mm. And, and you'll read this sometimes and you'll just kind of think oh wow Wow, that's really profound. No, it's not really profound. It's foolishness. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 where you will see a perfect description of what some of all this is. The wisdom of man is foolishness. God's smallest thought is wiser than man. They, They think they're so wise and it's foolishness. When I am thus able to be in process, it's clear that there can be no closed system of beliefs. No unchanging set of principles which I hold. Life is guided by a changing understanding of and interpretation of my experience. It is always in process of becoming. And that leaves us with biblical counseling. Biblical counseling. Leader, and I don't say this in jest, God. Because I really do want you to know, it's not Paul Tripp, it's not Jay Adams, it's not Stuart Scott, not Brad Bigney, not Elise Fitzpatrick. It's not, we're grateful for men and women that God is using, but it's God. 
Thank goodness for good. God uses people just like he used Martin Luther in 15-whatever to, 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 to start that thing by nailing those, those uh, uh, help me, thesis on the door. God used Jay Adams in 1973 who was working in the mental hospital saying, I don't see people getting better. This is horrific. And why isn't the church involved at all? Does the Bible not say anything? And he used him to pioneer. Let's take back and reclaim this area. I think God's word does address some of this. But this thing is not started by Jay Adams. And we don't bow down to Jay Adams. And we don't, we don't just grab onto anything he says and say that's right. It's God. Man? What about man? Look at the dramatic difference. Everybody else has him either as an instinctual animal or an environmentally influenced animal. Animal, animal, animal. We've got dignity here, created by God, in the image of God, with a purpose to please God. What's the problem? People are fallen sinners by choice, by birth and by choice. You're born a sinner, and then it doesn't take you long to simply choose that, and it plays out. Fallen sinner by choice. Responsibility? It is man's. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. If you've been sexually abused or there's been things that have happened to you by others, don't hear me saying that's your fault. Do hear this. You're still not just a victim. It's still because you're a human being and not an aardvark or a golden retriever. You still have the capacity to choose how you're going to respond to what has been done to you. That still puts you in a position of, I do have some choices. It's our responsibility. How am I going to process this? What am I going to do with this? Where am I going to turn for comfort? Guilt, it's real. It's real. Now, don't hear me saying there aren't exceptions. We live in a broken world where there can be people who they're feeling guilty where they shouldn't. So many times I will sort some of that out. For instance, I'll have somebody that's just eaten up with guilt. And maybe they're in their 50s or my age or older, and it's like... I, I had an abortion when I was 18 or, or I, there was a divorce in my past that was my fault. I mean, it was totally my fault. Now I'm a Christian. I wasn't then, but I still feel so guilty. So I, I have to help them go back to the gospel and understand God doesn't hold that against you. And they'll say things like, I know God has forgiven me, but I just can't forgive myself. And I'll have to help them understand how that's actually arrogant to say, I know God's forgiven me. But I have a higher standard than God. And, I, and often what's going on there is it's, I can't believe that I did that. Well, many times that's fueled by, you have too high of an opinion of yourself. You did. And you could do far worse, but for the grace of God. And when Christ died, he died for that. Receive Christ's forgiveness. So many times people may have false guilt as in they shouldn't feel this. But guilt is real. It's real. Let's deal with it as real because God's word has answers through the gospel. Think about how the world so often relabels. I touched on that, I think, in one of the sessions. It comes up with a new name. You know, kleptomania. All right. Well, that's scary. The Bible says nothing about that. Stealing. An affair. Adultery. Panic attack. Phobia. Fear. Fear. Anxiety disorder, worry, road rage, intermittent explosive disorder, anger, sexual addiction, fornication, adultery. See, the problem is when you allow the world to relabel everything, something else that sounds so foreign to the scriptures, then you start saying the Bible doesn't have answers for that. The treatment, 
Justification by faith. People need... We have so many opportunities, folks, to lead someone to Christ through counseling. So many... Many people who come in even, who are in a church, say they know Jesus. It comes to the surface as we work with them. That's the biggest problem. They really don't. They're religious They've been in church, but there is no vibrant personal relationship with Jesus Christ. They have no power to do other than what they want. People come to faith in Christ regularly, regularly. Be encouraged. Don't think exclusively in terms of, oh, biblical counseling discipleship has nothing to do with evangelism. Oh, my goodness. These two things mesh constantly. And here's the really exciting part. Often, until people are hurting enough, they won't come for help at close range and sit down. But then they are, and you have a chance to point them to Christ. Many, many people say, oh, I got saved in counseling. I, I, I was so excited. There, there's a fellow years ago now, but it was one of the worst situations I'd ever faced and dealt with in counseling that involved just horrible, horrible abuse and what he'd done and, you know, just... He's been tossed out of the home by his wife. He's at my house. He lives with me for a few days. Just the biggest mess. But God broke through and did an amazing, amazing work. And has had opportunity to be around him later. And, 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 and he was saying something about his walk with the Lord and knowing the Lord. And I said, well, when did, you, when did you get saved? And I assumed it was, he said, oh, in your bedroom that day, lying on my back, crying with a Kleenex box. I was like, wow. Many times in a crisis, people are made aware of, as never before, I don't know Christ. That's my biggest problem. I have no power, no, no, nothing beyond myself. So it can be quite evangelistic. Justification by faith and then progressive sanctification, using God's spirit that's in you, God's word, focus on facts, ask questions. Yes, we care about feelings, but what's behind those feelings And offer the grace of God's word. Titus 2 says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. And to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness. And to purify for himself a people that are his own. Eager to do what is good. See, with the change process, since it's all about change, you've got to have Jesus front and center in this. I just don't assume, oh, they say they're a Christian. I don't need to talk about Jesus or the gospel. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. He's our hope. We don't just have a system. We have a Savior, and I'm wanting to disciple people either to come to know him for the first time or to know him better. Dave Pallison says it well. He says, where the Lord calls for change, connect those specific changes to what God is doing. Whenever you need to change, put the Redeemer in the center of the picture. Don't ever degenerate into giving advice unconnected to the good news of Jesus, crucified, alive, present, at work, and returning. Paul Tripp says it similarly in his book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hand. He says, we approach the Bible with a, where can I find a verse on mentality. We forget that the only hope the principles offer rests on the person of Jesus Christ. Christ. We cannot treat the Bible as a collection of therapeutic insights. To do so distorts its message and will not lead to lasting change. If a system could give us what we need, Jesus would never have come. 
He's the only answer. So we must never offer a message that's less than the good news. We don't offer people a system. We point them to a redeemer. What about guilt? Deal with the sin. Deal with the response. Offer the hope of the gospel, crucifixion and resurrection in Jesus Christ. And so the counselor is a nuthetic counselor. That's just a Greek word, nuthateo, that means to come alongside and to put truth to mind. To come alongside and to put truth to mind. Biblical counseling, I gave this to you earlier last night, but here it is again, is coming alongside someone with God's word, filled with the Holy Spirit, giving hope and help from God's word, staying with them long enough for them to experience lasting change from the inside out by God's grace and for his glory. Draw yourself a Bible. So we got shovel, we got lab coat, we got mirror, we got Bible.